His Holiness the Dalai Lama was once asked as to the uh, nature of his religion and he replied in a rather succinct and I think rather now famous manner. He said, my religion is kindness. And this statement or expression of understanding as to what Buddhist teaching and practice is about is actually one that is rather useful. Sometimes perhaps dismissed as a little simple, there is nonetheless a remarkable amount of depth in what is implied by that particular statement. My religion is kindness. It's also said that in the time of the Buddha he was once asked by one of his uh, closest disciples and attendant, Ananda, who said to him, Is it not true that development, the development of kindness is what half of our practice is about? And the Buddha responded, in fact, no, it's not true. It's true that the whole of our practice is about the development of kindness. And spoken on many occasions and in different ways and times about the importance of kindness, of compassion, of the cultivating of our heart's capacity to cherish life, to cherish all beings. And so we can reflect on this capacity or quality, these qualities of our of our heart to cherish, to care for, to take care of. That basic kindness or caring is at the core of what initiates the whole process of practice. It's at the core of what actually brings us here to a retreat. Because we care about ourselves. We care about our lives and our welfare, our well-being. Therefore we're moved to practice. Not because we don't care, not because we're uninterested. It's reasonably clear that it comes from the wish for well-being, for freedom, for the end of suffering. This is an expression of caring for our life, that we would wish this for ourselves, and equally that we would wish it for another. And while in our practice we, it could be said, proceed from this point of seeking for our well-being and welfare through practice, what we also notice and become aware of is just how much of what goes on within us is driven by something other than that. How much of what arises within us, not all by any means, but certainly enough for it to sometimes seem like the predominant experience, is our tendency towards negativity, towards reactivity, towards rejection, judgment, unkindness, towards ourselves, unkindness towards others. And one thing we also notice in our practice is how painful it is to experience that. How painful it is when we're rejecting, when we're condemning, when we're judging, seeing ourselves judging another, or experiencing ourselves directing that judgment towards our own life and heart. It's so painful to be caught in this. And we can start to see and experience as we, as we recognise this, that that process of Rejecting our experience is actually not something we wish to support. We actually want to learn to open to, to embrace our experience. And that the accepting or the allowing of what is unfolding is a profound expression of kindness. 
giving space to that which is moving through to move, to do what it needs to do. Even though it may seem to present to us as something that is an obstacle or a problem or a limit in our well-being or our capacity to enact that which we would wish to enact. Understanding that all things that move within us have their place and their appropriate meaning. We can begin to, as an act of kindness to ourselves, make space for them, to allow them to move. There's a, a wonderful poem that I heard not so long ago, and got a copy of, by Joseph Brudruck. He said, or he wrote, The old man must have stopped our car two dozen times to climb out, and gather into his hands the small toes blinded by our lights and leaping like drops of rain. The rain was falling a mist about his white hair and I kept saying, you can't save them all, accept it, get back in the car, we've got places to go. But leathery hands full of wet brown life, knee deep in the summer roadside grass he just smiled and said, they have places to go too. <laughs> and how sometimes it seems like our experience is kind of in the way of our journey. That we don't have time to stop and take care of it. That we kind of somehow just want to steamroll out over the top of it. Feeling that somehow that would advance our journey. But actually... When we get to know what's going on inside, as a number of you have reported over these days, that sense of actually allowing what's there, the kindness that's expressed in that, is actually something that's profoundly sweet and healing, and often allows those things which are difficult within us to begin their process of transformation. It's the gift of space and allowing. That's actually an expression of kindness and of caring. And that... There's a way in which we can understand this as a, an experiential demonstration of the law of action and result, what's known as the law of karma in Dharma teachings. We often think of karma as being the effect. That's kind of how it's been uh, generally used and sort of it's being drawn into Western uh, sort of language, English language. We talk about karma as though the, that's what happens to us. But actually karma means action. It's what moves from us, what we actually put out into the world. And that's equally the inner world of our thoughts and feelings as the outer world and the actions and things and beings we act in relationship to. And the law of karma, the law of action, is quite simple. It says that the action and the result will be of the same nature. And the, in fact, the, the most useful way of translating result is sort of like action and fruit. The fruit of karma is what's spoken about. It's, and and the, the image that's used to describe it, it's like if you have a seed and plant it, it will produce fruit of the same character as that seed. This is kind of obvious. This. We know this. If you plant a, uh, the seed of a, a sweet melon, the plant that grows from that, the tree that grows from that will give sweet melon. If you plant the seed of something bitter, 
then the fruit that grows from that will be better. That's the nature of it. And what we start to see in our practice is that the inner process of grasping at one experience, trying to keep hold of it, or rejecting another experience, trying to get rid of it, is actually painful to us. There's actually an immediate message that the, the kind of reactivity that's being enacted inside ourselves is actually painful. Sometimes it's harmful or even feels like it's, it's unbearably painful to us. And yet it's actually, it's the inner reactivity that's going on that is bringing that result of painfulness. Much more so than the whatever it is we're reacting to. Likewise, in, although it's sometimes a little harder to see this and experience it so clearly and direct, directly, outwardly, when we're caught up in a sense of neediness or selfishness and we're kind of trying to grasp things for ourselves in a way that deprives others, ultimately this actually hurts us, this actually harms us. Or when we're caught up in aggressive reactivity, pushing away at someone else, or seeking actually to harm them, this also hurts us. This creates suffering for ourselves and others. And we can see, if we look in our minds, what are the things that get stuck there, that come back to torment us in our minds? It's those places where we've got caught in reactivity. One way or another, towards others or towards ourselves. Those are the places where we get stuck, with a sense of trying to hold on, or trying to push away. And what's important, a couple of things important with this, because when we see this, it's easy to be judgmental of it, to think this is bad or wrong. We even go so far as to start to use the language of evil, which, to my way of understanding the world, doesn't really exist in the way we conceive it. But what is going on is that we're actually, in our selfishness and our aggressiveness and our anger, our hatred, our greediness, we're actually trying to take care of ourselves. Isn't that so? We're trying to get for ourselves what we think we need in order to survive and keep hold of it. We're trying to get rid of and get out of that my face, thank you, the things that seem to threaten our existence, the experiences that are not, that seems like we can't coexist in the present of, presence of. And so actually, that there is in our reactivity a seed of trying to take care of ourselves, which is actually goodness, which is actually caring. And yet it's distorted in the way it comes forth. And that distortion leads to a result that is also not which we sought for, which is not in line with the core desire, which is actually our well-being. And that this taking care of ourselves is because at some level we understand that what we are is something precious, something worthy of taking care of. And yet, when we get caught up, when we get lost in this reactivity, we see how painful it is and how much suffering it causes, not just in our lives, but in the world. We see the effects of, of greed and selfishness, of aggression and violence. And so tragic, the effects in this world of all of that unrestrained reactivity. So then we engage in what we could call the practice of cultivating goodness. Practicing non-greed and non-hatred. This is actually a lot of what we learn to do. This is what the Buddha spoke of and taught again and again, being the foundation for our own well-being. Learning to allow our actions 
to move from a place of non-self-centeredness, non-selfishness, from non-aggression, non-anger, non-harming. That's the basic intention of what we seek to bring into the world through our through our activity, isn't it? Non-selfishness, non-aggression. In the context of our practice, this is expressed as allowing difficult things to just be. Let them be. Don't fight them. Allowing things we might wish to grab hold of, to let them go. Don't try and keep them. Just allowing our thing, our life to move. We actually start to experience less suffering. As we start to relinquish the unconscious habit of grasping and resistance, and we talk about this in many different ways. So you've kind of sort of We've said this quite a few times over the course of just a few days. But it's hard for us to get it, isn't it? It's hard for me to get it sometimes. So mm-hmm. I guess it's the same for you. But we kind of... We sort of feel like it's hard work, but actually, when we see the effect of it, that, we, that, that it brings well-being to us. It's actually enlightened self-interest. It's actually the wisest form of selfishness, to not be greedy. It's the wisest <laughs> form of self-kindness, not to enact unskillful expressions of aggression. That's not to say we won't experience the arising of those movements, but that we learn to see them. This is why we cultivate mindfulness, awareness, so that we can see them and see, A, what the effect of enacting them is, i.e. suffering, separation, it's not serving our well-being. And the kindness, the natural kindness in us, sees that then we don't want to go that way. If it's harming me, if it's painful to me, I don't wish to go that way. And we start to do the work of practice, which is being more awake in order to make that critical choice. It's like the choices that really make the difference in the end are those moments where we see that we could react out of self-centered greed, selfishness, or anger, reactivity, or we could respond from a place of acknowledging the appropriateness and the importance of all the beings and all the life involved in the situation. That doesn't mean we don't respond, but do we do so from a place of including everything and everyone, so far as we're able? And this non-reactivity, this responding, this responsibility, this is what both is the cause and the result of a deepening in goodness that really practice brings about a sense of a good heart. Not good in a moral sort of good or bad, right or wrong, but good in terms of something that supports what we sense and understand as the quality of our life and the quality of our other's life. The quality, that sort of elusive word that it's really quite hard to say what quality is, but we all know what it is. It's that something which is just right, which is just so, which is the essence of what we talk about is goodness. And yet isn't actually opposed to anything. Isn't the opposite of anything. Practicing in this way, as we have been doing, learning to release the reactivity. Learning to be present for that moment when we may have that choice. (coughs) When we may be able to make that choice and actually choose to just open or to be still in the face of something that would provoke us otherwise to react and to contract. 
we actually start to feel. There's actually a number of things we start to feel, but to begin with, we just actually start to feel. And we realize how much we could be living our life not feeling. Because the reaction and the grasping and the resistance is so much about keeping ourselves protected from feeling our life. And we begin to feel, we begin to feel more open, we begin to feel more connected, because actually allowing life in has that effect. It starts to become something relational, something responsive, something alive, rather than something frozen and frigid and defended and contracted and solid and hard. And over here, while everything else is over there. That sense of connectedness, to feel ourselves in a relational response, a conscious relational responding condition. We can actually start to see that what we conceive of and describe as our sense of self, of me, of being over here, somehow separate, is actually the structures that create it, the sense of me, the story of me, the uh, the primary importance of me over everything else, is actually born and created out of a solidified history, a contraction of many, many sort of contractions on top of contractions of fear and of desire, of craving, of neediness. That if their hearts do have some sense of something that we care for that is precious, but which gets so deeply buried in this solidified structure that's just a whole bunch of I want and I don't want, I need and I don't, and I can't bear. That are stories of self that are, are sort of contracted. We can feel it sometimes. People kind of have spoken about this in the groups and interviews about the sense of feeling that contraction of self. How painful it is. And how when we make space for it, that letting go is actually compassion expressed towards ourselves. Letting go isn't about depriving ourselves or somehow having to go without. Letting go is actually allowing ourselves the space in which to breathe, in which to live, and is a profound act of kindness in that way. To see the solidity and to begin to soften around it, Again, moved by kindness for our own well-being, caring for our own well-being. That's our natural wish and response. It's not like we have to sit there and think, hmm, would it be a good idea then to feel less pain and suffering? No, it's kind of obvious to us that's the way we want to go. So sometimes that means moving towards things which are painful for us. And we see that pain and suffering are actually two different things. The painful is, as we've spoken about, something that we encounter in life pretty much inevitably. But suffering is really the the piece that gets added to it when we struggle. And when we release that struggle, we find ourselves actually less experiencing solidity as what we are. That our experiences are fluid. We start to see, they move, they change. We're observing them, among other reasons, in order to see that they move and they change. So we've noticed that this happens when we pay attention to experience. We really look at it when we're really present. We see it moving and changing and of course because we tend to take ourselves to be those experiences we start to feel less solid ourselves because my solid me is 
made up a whole lot of things that aren't solid. So how do you do that? You can't. It's like you get a whole lot of lumps of jelly and bung them together in a bag. They're still kind of soft and mushy. You can't get it very solid. Unless you stick it in the freezer and leave it there. Which is kind of... <laughs> kind of what happens when... Uh, when we stop feeling, and we actually disengage from our heart, and we, the warmth of our life starts to recede from the, from the surface of our experience. And we're not solid. We're not so solid. We see change, changing experience, and therefore changing sense of who I am. We find ourselves manifesting in ways we didn't expect to turn up courageous when we normally expect ourselves to be fearful or struggling when we normally expect ourselves to always succeed or whatever we don't always turn up the way we expect and again as that sense of solidity softens we we actually start to feel or perhaps begin to sense that we're not so separate from everything around us because the very fact that the, the reason things are changing is because they're all dependent upon each other. That nothing exists without many different things holding it up, holding it together. And as soon as one of those things changes, because it was dependent on a whole lot of other things, then things stay in motion, things keep moving. And that, that process of being affected and affecting, of things interacting with each other, relating, we see that when we act, it has an effect on the world. And that effect also comes back to us. This effectiveness, with an A, not an E. Was it? No. Okay. I'll leave that. <laughs> not sure which one it is actually. In the middle of talking about. But it's like we have this sense of being separate and apart from. And yet, when we really look at it, if what I'm experiencing is constantly affected by what's around me, and I think I am what I'm experiencing, then. I'm, I am what's around me because it's constantly affecting what I'm experiencing. Somehow I'm part of that. And the sense of isolation or solidity that goes with it, it starts to soften. It's like because we can't quite locate ourselves as precisely or rigidly as we used to. And it's, it's a little bit like ice in water. You know, it's kind of like that piece of ice is it's sort of different than the water but it's kind of the same. And if you leave it in a large enough amount of water, what happens to the ice? It dissolves. It melts back into water. Of course, if there's more ice than water, it could possibly freeze the, freeze the water, but it's not normally what happens in a glass that I've observed. And that's kind of because the ambient temperature is warmer than ice. Like, although we kind of contracted, the nature of life is actually not frozen. It's, it's actually warm. And it actually invites us to melt into it. In the same way the ambient temperature of the planet is one that invites ice to melt. At least in most places. So what is this process of melting into life that we're engaged in? What happens as a result of that? If we're not really separate from each other, even though we might feel to be at times, if we're not really separate, because we can't draw an absolute line and say, I'm here and nothing affects me. We can't. We are affected. So we are, can't be separate and apart from it. If that's true, and it is true, 
And doesn't it suggest to us that anything we do, any act we act in this, and act in this world, affects us directly? Because we are not separate from this world. So, to harm or to deprive another would actually be to harm or to deprive ourselves. In a way that our mind may not be able to conceive. But our heart knows when we feel connected to something or to someone. When we feel connected, when we feel kindness or care for another, we have no wish to deprive them or to harm them. We only wish to care for them. Likewise, when we feel connected to ourselves, we have no wish to deprive or harm ourselves. It's only when we feel disconnected from ourselves that such reactions arise. And what's happened is, is basically that natural and appropriate caring and wish to serve the welfare of something precious and alive has become focused on, we could say, a, a reduced image or a reduced fragment of the wholeness of life, which we call me, or we call my family, or those I love, or my people, my race, my religion, my nation, whatever, where we identify and these become the people we care about, or my species. These become the beings we care about, because we're somehow identified with them. And yet, that, wherever we place that line of separation, and we have many of them, whether within parts of our being, separating off parts of our own heart, or within our communities, or our world, in different ways, in those places, in those edges, suffering arises. Because it's not true. Because it's not reflecting the genuine underlying truth of life. In which all of it is connected and all of it is precious. None more nor less so than anything else. To begin to sense this is to find the movement of life that presents through one's heart and mind and actions, more and more becoming aligned with just a, a natural kindness and compassion that's actually beyond goodness. That doesn't make sense to really talk about in terms of being good. It's simply just the nature of things. It's simply what happens when that expansive vision, when that non-contracted presence of heart is exposed to life, is exposed to the world. There's a beautiful passage, or I guess a number of passages in the uh, the, the, uh, the Bodhisattva's Guide to Life by uh, the way of the Bodhisattva. That's a better translation. Bodhisattva being a being who's uh, committed to fully cultivating all the wholesome and good qualities of the human heart for the welfare of all. A great text written by uh, Shantideva, an uh, Indian scholar, poet and mystic who lived uh, many hundred years ago. And he, he speaks rather remarkably and beautifully of this experience of what it is to no longer relate from the point of being separate, from the perspective of being apart. And he says, just as we see our own limbs 
as part of this body. Could we not see all beings as the limbs of embodied life? And he goes on to say, when acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises within me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. It's like nothing special about acting on behalf of others because actually it's like feeding oneself. It's already complete. You're not doing it to get something else. It's already complete. It's not given out in order to get something back. It's already complete. The giving and the receiving are in the same movement. What gives receives. What receives is what gives. And he goes on to speak about how the hand just rubs the foot when it's sore. I remember thinking about this when I first heard it. It was a lovely image. It's like, sure, you know, we hurt our foot. And the hand just goes to rub it, doesn't it? Of course. We don't, you know, the hand doesn't think, well, shall I rub the foot? <laughs> I've had a hard day, you know. I don't know if I want to do that. Equally, the hand doesn't think, oh, I'm really spiritual and holy and compassionate. Rubbing the foot. You know, it's just obvious and natural. It's not like having some, you know, hand has some big ego about it. It's like hand and foot, they seem to be separate, don't they? It's down here doing its thing. This is over here doing its thing, but where are they separate? If you draw the line, where is it? You call it here, here, somewhere else? No. There's no place where the hand ends and the foot begins. You could call it a hand foot. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes the hand rubs the foot when it's all. Sometimes the foot walks around, you know, looking for food or whatever, while the hand's having a rest in the pocket. There's a sort of a, a turnabout. <laughs> and we just take it for granted. We don't think, you know, this has got to be done all equally. It's like each part serves by simply doing what it does. Because of the sense of wholeness that's implicit in a single body. There's a great um, fable in Aesop's Fables which sort of speaks to that as well, in which uh, all the body parts decided the stomach was a bit of a slacker. <laughs> It just hangs around in the middle of the belly doing nothing, they said. And so they said, okay, well the feet aren't going to walk to it, the eyes aren't going to look for food, the feet aren't going to walk there, the hands aren't going to pick it, the mouth isn't going to chew it and swallow it. I'll teach that stomach to, you know, pull its weight. (laughs) And after a little while, of course, uh, the body started getting rather ill and they realised the mistake. And thinking that just because it was hanging around there and they all seemed to be serving it, that it wasn't doing it. yet it has its place. It serves in its own way. And this I think we actually start to realise when we're not caught up in reactivity. It's kind of remarkable that even though it might at first seem to be only occasional moments, when the reactivity drops away, when we're not caught in the midst of trying to get or get rid of, What's there is actually a natural sense of well-being. It's just there. It's not as a result of, it's there. And equally there's a natural sense of appreciation and caring. It's just there. Often it's expressed as, hey, this is great, I've got it now, how nice. That moment of peace that's immediately interrupted by our enthusiastic grabbing at us. But over time we learn to just receive it. 
recognize it for what it is. What is this condition of being when we're not caught in reactivity? When we're open, when we're connected, love is there. Love, that word that gets used so much in so many different ways and some of us might sort of recoil at the thought of it because it's so loaded with so many complicated and different meanings and apparent contradictions. And yet there's something in it. That's why I tend to often talk, well, love, we talk about caring. We care. We know we care. Caring is a little more straightforward in a certain way. We care in so many different ways about life and others and ourselves. And it's there because it's basic to what we are. It's basic to our nature. It's like one of the fundamental dimensions of what it means to be alive is that there is caring. And that it tends to get distorted. It tends to get covered over when it gets occluded or distorted by our tendency to see life through the lens of self-centeredness, the sense of me and mine. And the disconnection and the reactivity that arises from that distortion. And yet, despite that distortion and the disconnection and the reactivity we experience when we're operating from that from that <laughs> sense of self-centeredness, nonetheless, there's still the caring. It's still there. It's still in it. And that caring is actually what brings us to look at what's going on here. To actually open to what's happening. Because without that distortion being placed, over our hearts and our minds. Love, caring, kindness is actually the natural expression of life to itself. It's actually the nature of what's going on. What this is, is the manifestation of that. We could understand it this way. And its nature is not particularly to have some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling or something, you know, love, mm, whatever that is. <laughs> you know, that maybe we experience and maybe we don't. It's actually different than that. So it can include it. But actually what it's more about is it's a, a capacity that responds. It responds with kindness. It responds with care. And it's really useful and important to understand that kindness and compassion are actually a response of life, a response from our heart to life that happens. It's not something we do or have to ha- make happen, but it happens when we actually clear the space that allows it. When we clear the space or allow the space to clear even, by not feeding into the reactivity and the contracted, limited way of looking at the world that is born of it. And this response that is there, as I said at the beginning, at the very heart of what brings us to practice and what we're doing in our practice, this response of kindness, of compassion, comes because there is suffering. Because we see there is suffering in the world. 
Well, we try and avoid it and escape it. There's suffering in our hearts. We try and avoid it and escape it. But it doesn't work. What it needs is actually compassion. Compassion feels. It doesn't not feel because it's going to hurt. It feels. <coughs> and it responds out of that feeling, out of that connection with life. It responds. And yet it's hard for us to trust that because it can often feel for us that we've had to turn away from it because it's, it's, we don't know how. How can I face this world or even my own life, it seems too much. It seems immense, perhaps. The amount of suffering in this one existence, let alone in the vastness of this world, or even beyond this whole cosmos. And it just feels like, that's too much. I can't do that. It'll overwhelm me. Perhaps when we were young, it did overwhelm us. We needed to close down to protect ourselves. But as we grow into our fullness as adults, and it takes time, the growing of our body to adult maturity is a small part of the process of what it means to really grow into our fullness. And it takes a lifetime, if not many. But that process of growing into our life, growing into our capacity to open beyond those places of contraction and limitation and separateness, comes when we actually acknowledge that deep in our hearts there is that wish to heal the suffering of life, our life. And yet, we can't necessarily do it all at once. Ryokan, the Zen monk, don't, don't, don't know if I mentioned him already on this retreat. Probably not. I sometimes don't remember whether I said it three days ago or four, five days ago on a different <laughs> retreat. But, uh, um, anyway, he, he was a Zen monk who lived in the 17th century and uh, a wonderful poet and uh, He once, he once expressed this, I, I thought, again, just in a way that I find very touching. He said, in looking into the world of suffering, as he must have been doing in that, he said, Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering beings in this floating world. And I just kind of had this image of this great-hearted being just gathering everyone up to him and just holding them to his, to his bosom, to his heart. My monk's robe were wide enough. And uh, one of my favourite stories about Rio Khan is uh, one, one day in a, on a sunny winter's day after a hard frost, he was uh, seen to be picking the lice out of his robe and putting them on a, 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 sun, a south-facing stone rock to sun themselves in the warm, <laughs> in the, in the warm summer, in the warm sunshine. And how remarkable! Act of compassion, and even more remarkable at the end of the day, picking them up and putting them back in the garden. <laughs> and one thinks, wow, what relationship to life does this being have? Quite remarkable. To see that we might wish to heal all things and have all parts of ourselves in this moment or earlier, if possible, please. Um, and yet the feeling that we can't do that sometimes frustrates us. And we can easily and sadly give up and feel it's too much, it's beyond what I can do with what I can do. And in that we turn away from that natural wish to respond, it's there. But actually what's 
what's so critical here is to remember, to know. This is something I, I've kind of, I think, learnt over, I'm still learning, but have had opportunity to, to learn over years of how important it is to just do what we can. That we can't necessarily fix or resolve all situations in the world. We can't necessarily address all the shadows and hurt places in our own hearts. We can't do that all at once. We can't make it all happen right now, much as we might like to. But what we can and what we need to respond to is that which is right here, that which is most close to us. I had a remarkable and powerful initiation into this. I would say when I was travelling in India many years ago and I uh, had the opportunity to visit Shishi Bhavan, which is one of the uh, the organisations or sort of institutions run by the uh, Sisters of Mercy, Mother Teresa's organisation in Calcutta, city of incredible poverty and uh, deprivation and suffering amongst the poor people living on the streets. And Shishi Bhavan translates roughly as children's home. It was an orphanage. And uh, it was a place where the children of uh, incredibly poor, impoverished, sick and deprived and dying families had been brought. Some because they were orphans, some because their families simply had absolutely no resources to care for them. And so I, I came to visit this place and I'd been informed when calling out, I was coming with a friend, that there was, there was another, another man and um, we were told we could come and visit for a a couple of hours, but some of the kind of cultural traditions in India is that we weren't as men sort of allowed to work in that or volunteer in that particular organisation or institution. There are other things one could do if one wished. But we knew we just had a couple of hours. That was the time allotted for a visit. And we came to this this building, Shishi Bhavan, and in it there was this large hall, probably one and a half times the size of the, the room where you do the yoga. It's quite a large hall, and it was full of cots. And in each of these cots, they were packed quite closely together. There was just room to walk down between each cot. The lions. And in each cot were two babies. As we walked into the room, this room, this sea of cots, and this sea of babies, as we just walked into this room, my friend and I, these little babies, aged, I don't know, up to maybe 18 months, I'm not really sure, started, some of them just reaching their arms up, looking up. Others that were a little older started to pull themselves up on the sides of their little cots and reaching up. And my friends and I looked at each other, like the, there was, I guess, three or four of the, um, the sisters of the order in there um, going around sort of taking care of the babies. And like we realised, it was like this transmission, instantly what was happening, what was the situation. But there were all these babies, there were just a few people able to take care of them and they had just about enough time in the day to get around all the you know, feeding at one end, wiping at the other. All day, that was what they did. And they didn't have time to pick these babies up and hold them. And it was just so clear. We just realised these babies want to be helped. And so, reaching down and picking up a little baby and just... <laughs> like a limbo. <laughs> and that was amazing. Just, just, just holding these babies. And then realising that there was this room full of babies. And so after a little while, just prizing the baby off, <laughs> putting it down up another one. <laughs> Holding it for a while. It was an amazing experience. It was heartbreaking to realise that there was in some way so little we could do with these beings. 
And part of me thought, you know, I could probably give my life up and just spend my days walking through this room, picking up those babies, and it would be as meaningful and good a life as any I could imagine, and as fulfilling. But after our two, a lot of hours were up, we left, and I continued on my travels. It was heartbreaking to feel that immensity of need and the sense of being unable to really satisfy that for one reason or another I wasn't going to give my life up for that. Not what happened anyway. Or make that my life. I wasn't even giving my life up, but make that my life. I, I didn't. And yet, having done what we could, was remarkably healing. It was like, so we did what we felt we were able to do. We gave that time. We, gave, you know, we didn't get around half the babies in the room. Those we did, we just really hugged. It was lovely, and I talked. You know, 15 years probably. Um, remember, something sort of very deep in you, just what that was, to just do what we could. And then just trust that that's all we were asked to do in that moment. That we couldn't take on the responsibility for these beings. One way or another. To see that we have our limits too. So we can't just be the sort of great compassionate sort of saint who can spend their life hugging other beings. Well, maybe we can, wonderful if that be so, but for most of us we can do that some of the time. Some of the time we want to get a hug. And seeing that where we actually come across our own limitations, where we can't because we feel like, I've got to look after me, or I want to be taken care of. Those are the places where we need compassion for ourselves. Those edges show us where we ourselves are still caught in those places of need. And that there's no hierarchy in the end between caring for others and caring for ourselves. So when we're open, when we're connected, we can actually give. We have that which naturally just flows out to others to share. When we have plenty of food and someone comes along, it's obvious to share some with them. When we have, it seems, barely enough for ourselves. We have to think about it a bit more carefully. <laughs> and of course, that's how it is. And yet, bringing compassion to those places in ourselves where it's hard to give more, rather than judging or condemning ourselves or feeling that we're no good because we can't give enough. Only as much as we're able to give is what we are. Not able according to, according to our shoulds and our ideas, our projections, or our expectations or our guilt, but what we're able to in terms of what actually flows out. Because that's what's there. Not more than that. How could there be? How would there be? Doing what we can is what we're asked to do. In doing so, we actually align ourselves with where life is right now, with where our part and our place in the journey is taking on wholeheartedly our ability to respond. That's our responsibility, not more than that. It's not the response we can't make. How could that be our responsibility? It's the response we can make. And even though it may just be small, even though it may not solve the problem in our mind that we see the problem, it's enough if we just do what we can. And in doing so, we honour all that lives. We honour the life that is in us and that moves through us. But still finding its way to its fullness. Finding its way to truly knowing in all moments, in all dimensions, 
It's truth in its nature. And at the same time being called, being evoked, being invited to that discovery. Invited to that return. And it's love that calls. It's love that invites. Because we can. And because preciousness is in all things, we care for them. Preciousness is in all life, in ourselves and others. And it's hard sometimes to receive that. We don't always feel that to be the case. And yet, it's precisely hard when we don't feel that to be the case because we do care. Because it is so. That's why it's hard. So even when we can't connect with that, and it hurts, to hold that with tenderness too. Because that's where life is right now that we need to respond to. To find the compassionate response to that too. through our practice and our lives, may we find and forge an ever deeper connection with the, the kindness, the compassion, the goodness and the preciousness that is that which we are. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.